It's an encouragement to hear brothers and sisters singing out the good news that we stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That is hope for us, that Christ has come, that he has taken on flesh, that he has died and rose again. That is good news for all those who have ears to hear. Let's pray together as we open God's word. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we do praise you and thank you for the good news of the gospel. It is the hope in which we stand, and it's by your grace alone that it has been accomplished, and that you have called for yourself a people that are to be holy and set apart for your glory, that we would proclaim in word and deed the good news of this gospel, the power it has to transform and change lives, because it's your living word. So we ask this morning as we look into your word that you would equip your children, your sheep, your flock to love, adore, to repent of sin, and and to do all this out of a desire to please our Heavenly Father. We thank you, God, for your grace to us. We ask that you would continue to pour it out, that your spirit would be present with us as we seek to understand what you have told us to do to understand not just the the do's and the don'ts, but to understand the motivations that you lay forth for your children so that we might have a heart that is pleasing in your sight as we seek to live for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I think for most of us, there's this situation that comes up in our lives that we, we really don't always enjoy. And it's when we're told to not do something. Whenever we're told to not do something, it seems like the knee-jerk reaction is, why? Why can't I do that? Or why shouldn't I do this? And there's oftentimes motivations and purposes that are tied to those statements. If I told my child to not touch the oven, it's because it's hot and you'll get burned and that would be bad and I don't want that for you, that's dangerous. If my wife told me, um, don't eat the Oreos that are in the cupboard, I would say, why would you put Oreos in the cupboard if not to eat? And she would say, well, I'm, I'm planning to make a dessert that's, that's involving all the Oreos and so you need to make sure to not take any so that we can enjoy that dessert later. There's, there's also joys that are set forward, delights that we look forward to in some of those motivations of why we're told to not do something. But we always want to really understand why. Why are we told to not do something? And this morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Philippians, a letter that is all about joyfully serving Christ. But what we find in this letter is that if we are going to be joyfully servants of Christ, then that means that there are things that we are told that we are not to do. After Paul's appeal to the church in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, Paul jumps right into applying what striving for faithful obedience looks like for a servant of Christ. And his opening statement is this sort of total restriction for the believer. It's a prohibition for all servants of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Paul writes, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And our first question might naturally be, why? Why? 
Why is this the first thing Paul mentions? Why is this so restrictive to anything we do? And why, why is it so important that we make sure there is no grumbling? In the following verses, Paul addresses the question, why? But before we get those answers to those questions, we need to first understand what it is that Paul is talking about. What does he mean by grumbling and disputing? Well, grumbling first is, is really a self-centered response that believes something is undeserved. It's complaining, it's discontentment, it's ungrateful, and it's joyless. The heart of the grumbler whines, that's not fair. Disputing, rather, conveys the idea of arguing for self-centered reasons. It's fighting and bickering and contending that shows no concern for God or care for others. The heart of one who disputes cries out, I know I'm right and I will prove it to you. And these sins are interconnected. They're connected in this way. If unaddressed grumbling continues, it will lead to ugly disputing. But you may be asking yourself this morning, so is it like totally wrong all the time to ever make a, a formal complaint or to give constructive criticism, and I just can't question anything ever again. Is that what this is saying in this text? No, it's not. That's not what God's word says. We must remember that sin is always an issue of the heart. Within our biblical definitions, we have an overlapping root idea, and that is self-centeredness. It's selfishness. You see, grumbling is sinful because its primary concern is with self. And sinful disputing as well is exposed by its selfish motives in its disdain for others. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul made a similar statement addressing the very root of grumbling and disputing. Philippians 2, 3, he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul is not bringing up a new topic, but he's simply trying to press deeper into the same topic and apply God's word practically in everyday life. And although these sins are common in our world, they are extremely wicked. Grumbling and disputing is sown in the very fabric of our sin nature. If you think back to the garden, what was it that Adam and Eve did? They disobeyed God's orders, his commands. And what was Adam's response to God? He said, it's the woman you gave me. It's not my fault, God. It's your fault. Arguing, complaining, self-centered, blame-shifting. We need to recognize that these sins are no lightweights. If there were a March Madness bracket for sins, grumbling would be sure to be a number one seed. Grumbling and arguing, although they start in the heart and head, they manifest themselves in our speech. In our study through Luke 6, we saw Jesus teaching that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the reason grumbling and disputing is so difficult to conquer is because it involves taming the tongue. James would make this point in his letter in chapter 3, verse 2. He writes, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. 
being controlled in our speech is central to growing towards maturity in Christ. So Paul picks out the most insidious and contagious manifestation of self-centeredness. He says, there is to be none of that among you, ever under any circumstances. And these sins are just as much a problem today as they were back then. If you're thinking, oh yeah, I know several people, maybe even listening right now, who need to listen to this. Let me just ask you to set those thoughts aside this morning. That's a temptation and a distraction from what God is wanting to do in your heart and life today. You can't listen for others, but you can ask the Lord to help you hear his word and obey his word in your life. To help each of us grasp our own need, I want to try to pull back the curtain, as it were, on grumbling. And since grumbling really leads to disputing, I'm going to be focusing on that primarily in our time together this morning. And I think one of the most helpful ways really to identify sin in our own lives that scripture describes is to really think through what it feels like in seed form, when it's just starting and there's this sort of brewing, selfish response to something. So think through in your own life if grumbling appears in these areas. Grumbling can often feel like a desire to protect your reputation. Grumbling can feel like being misunderstood or mistreated. If people would just listen to me, then they would agree. Grumbling can feel like being fatigued, being overwhelmed, or being inconvenienced. It can feel like an injustice is being ignored and you need people to agree with you. It can feel like I'm worthless, I have no purpose. What's the point? Friends, if we are going to strive to faithfully obey our Lord Jesus, we need to identify, confess, and turn away from sin. Which means we must forsake all grumbling and disputing at all times. And thanks be to God that we are not left with an isolated command. He tells us not just that we're not to do something, but he tells us why. This pattern is often found in scripture where we see an exhortation is followed by encouragements. And it is God's spirit who enables his children to see that God's commands are not only right, but that they are for our good and his glory. Let's read our text in its entirety, starting with chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The central truth that Paul presses in our text this morning is that servants of Christ forsake grumbling for the glory of God. If we are to strive and be faithful, obedient Christians, we must forsake grumbling for the glory of God. 
And in our text this morning, Paul is seeking to help us understand why we should forsake grumbling. In the following verses, Paul lays out three God-glorifying motivations for the servant of Christ to forsake all grumbling. If we are to be equipped to put to death this sin in our lives, we must know God's glorious purposes for his prohibition of grumbling. The first godly motivation we see in our text for forsaking grumbling is that we are to, uh, we are to forsake grumbling so that we can shine forth the gospel. It's so that we can shine forth the gospel. Paul builds a case against grumbling by presenting positive purposes of God. He says in verse 15 that a rejection of grumbling is so that we would, he said, be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. This is the true identity of a servant of Christ. Those who have trusted in Christ are children of God. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone that we have been given the right to become children of God, according to John chapter 1. Salvation is a work of God where he takes those who were his enemies and he adopts them into his family. But by God's grace, not only does he transfer us as new children, he also transforms us into a new creation. Paul would declare this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul points out repeatedly in his epistles that we as Christians are to live in alignment with the gospel that has saved us. In the verses preceding, Paul encouraged us that we are to work out what God has already worked in. In chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, he set forth this singular focus by saying, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here he says that the characteristic of a servant of Christ is that we be blameless and innocent without blemish. These terms can often confuse us. Does Paul mean for us to be perfect in this life? No, I don't believe so. Paul would emphasize this very contradiction in chapter 3, verses 12. He writes, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. He's saying, I'm not perfect in this life. But he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Paul is not teaching some sort of perfectionism. So what does it mean for a believer to be blameless, innocent, and pure? God provided for us through King David a helpful explanation in Psalm 19, 12 through 13. King David would write at the end of verse 13 saying, Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So there's a then clause, so let's look before it in verse 12 to say, what is it that, that leads to this conclusion of being blameless and innocent? And starting in verse 12 of Psalm 19, he cries out, Who, who can discern his error? Declare me, he says to God, innocent from hidden faults. God, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. To be blameless and innocent in God's eyes requires God's mercy and grace. 
For us to be blameless and innocent, we must be dependent on his mercy for our hidden sins and even dependent on his grace to keep us from presumptuous and intentional high-handed sins. When it is evident in your life that you are humbly serving Christ as Lord and that you're not in bondage to sin, it has no dominion over you, then God's grace has worked in you to make you free to walk as a child of God, blameless and innocent in his sight. But not only is it in God's sight that Paul's focused about, Paul's points out that God's purpose for purity in his children is that we would shine forth with the gospel in a wicked world. He continues in verse 15 stating that we are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life. Paul wants us to see that God intends for his children to live distinct from the world so that the gospel can be displayed and declared to be true and powerful. The Apostle John would assert that the way people live identifies who it is they serve. 1 John 3.10, he writes, By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Holy living is meant to set God's people apart. This has always been God's purpose for his children in every generation. And most frequently, we find in scripture this example of sort of a a negative example of grumbling and complaining that the authors of scripture always refer to the Israelites that God powerfully rescued out of Egypt. And Paul's word choice here in Philippians is meant to bring that picture to mind. Listen to the overlapping words from the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32.5. They, referring to Israel, have dealt corruptly with him, referring to the Lord. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Paul's reference helps us paint the picture super clear. The sinful world in which we live is just like the Israelites that God brought out of Egypt. They were so warped in their thinking that they could see the very power of God controlling creation and defeating opponents, and yet days later complain about food and water. Not only complain and grumble against God, but actually state that they'd rather go back to Egypt They'd rather go back into slavery than humbly trust their Savior. That is the twisted and bizarre nature of our world. Sin is insanity. But friends, if we grumble at God or with one another, we look just as crazy as them. The purpose of being blameless and innocent To be distinct children of God is that we might shine as lights in this broken world, holding fast, he says, to the word of life. The idea of shining paints in our picture of our mind a beaming star that breaks through the dark night sky. And like the overwhelming brilliance of the cosmos at night, we as believers are meant to light up this world with the love of Christ. 
But Paul's focus is not merely here, I think, on behavior. There is a content and a message involved in our shining. Paul explains shining in the following phrase where he says, holding fast to the word of life. This is a clear reference to the gospel as the word of life. And it emphasizes that this is a message that gives life. The gospel is the very power of God unto salvation. Several good translations also provide insight into this idea of holding fast, such as holding firmly, holding out, or even holding forth. Up to this point in the letter, Paul has been continually emphasizing the priority of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both him in prison and the Philippians during their persecution. And Paul is continuing to hammer on this same theme. As if to say, we ought to live free of any grumbling so that we can be useful in the mission of Christ. The irony in our text is that we often grumble and dispute in an effort to try to avoid blame or even to prove ourselves innocent of a conviction or innocent of something. But we do it out of this sort of self-centered motivation. But it is only when we forsake grumbling that we are actually proven by God to be blameless and innocent for his purpose, not our own. To humbly shine forth the gospel to others for his glory. When we forsake grumbling, we evidence the truly transforming grace of God in the lives of his children. And in doing so, we give glory to our Father in heaven. But Paul does not stop here. Paul continues to show a second godly motivation. Look with me again at verse 16. He continues, after saying, holding fast to the word of life, to say, So that in the day of Christ... I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The second godly motivation for forsaking grumbling is so that we can proudly labor for Christ. So that we can proudly labor for Christ. In the flow of our text, Paul showed God's purpose for believers to cease all grumbling. But in verse 16, he transitions to show an eternal perspective as a godly motivation. We often lack an eternal perspective on the present life. But for Paul, the day of Christ was fuel on the fire for ministry. The thought of standing before his master actually spurred him on in service to his king. Paul mentioned already in chapter 1, verse 22, he said, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul's perspective is that while I'm here on earth, I am to expectantly labor for Christ. And in verse 16, Paul here bubbles over with yearning and zealous laboring and running. He is eager to help the Philippians walk in obedience so that he may be proud, he says, at the day of Christ. This day of Christ that Paul speaks of for believers is not one of judgment. 
but one of evaluation. For those who are saved, the judge himself has already declared you righteous through Christ. You are, as he said, a child of God. So your right standing before God and your eternal destiny are secure. Those are not under evaluation here. But what is evaluated is your life as a servant of Christ. Paul speaks to this again in 1 Corinthians 3, 13 through 15, referring to believers. He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Paul's anticipation of the day of Christ motivated him to run and strive and labor for his Lord. Not occasionally, not passively, not with this sort of, well, whatever happens, happens mentality, but rather expectantly. He wanted to proudly present his labor for Christ to Christ. Have you ever wanted to make your parents proud? We have a dump truck load full of crayons and coloring pencils and markers in my home. And I have a a small gang of little girls who love coloring. And there are really these precious moments you get to experience with your children when they start running across the room to you, paper flailing in the air, and then they stand in front of you and they put it straight back as if to hide it from you and say, Dad, I made something for you. What is it? What did you make? And they bring out this picture, beaming with pride, and they're so excited to show you, I drew this for you, I colored this for you. And they share all the little details of what colors they chose and how, how they actually chose to add some to the background, and they show you all these beautiful details. And at the end, they say, I did it all for you. I did it all for you. That's the type of proud laboring that Paul's talking about. It's not this self-centered sort of mentality of, I wanna be proud of myself and what I did here on this earth. It's an others-focused, even sacrificial mentality. That's exactly what Paul describes in the next verse in 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul is spending himself for the good of Christ's church and the advancement of the gospel. And get this, he wanted it to not be in vain. He wanted it to be valuable. He wanted to stand at the day of Christ as a child of God and say, I did it all for you. I think there's sometimes a danger in believers' hearts and mentalities of that sort of apathetic Christian life. Like, well, what's going to happen is going to happen, and I can only do my best. That's not not what Paul's plainly saying here. 
He's saying, I've hitched my wagon to these believers. I have a vested interest in them as a servant of Christ. And the way they grow in godliness matters to me because it matters to Christ. It matters on that day. If our hearts are set on serving Christ by sacrificially loving his church, we will do all things without grumbling and disputing. But we can also flip it around. If there is grumbling in your life, you are not seeking to serve Christ. You are seeking to serve self. When you're complaining about your circumstances or even the difficult people in your life, you are not sacrificially serving others. Maybe you're like me and you're guilty of grumbling. And you've had those sinful moments where your mind gets locked on an issue and it just consumes your thoughts. You turn into this sort of cross-examination attorney and you just unload the innumerable arsenal of arguments and you see all the facts clearly and you are able to prove without question that you are right. In conclusion, you simply turn to the judge and jury and you look for a standing ovation. Friends, this sort of thinking is sinful, whether it's spoken out loud or not. It's grumbling and disputing, and it does not serve Christ. It seeks to serve self, and it must be forsaken. It must be repented of because it is sin against God. You see, we are saved by Christ to shine and to serve, but when we grumble, We are not submitted to Christ's purposes. We are not obeying Christ as Lord. Instead of anticipating seeing Christ on the throne, we think we should go ahead and take a seat for a while and play his role. We think that we should play the role of the all-knowing judge of the universe. We think that we should be God. This is the true face of grumbling. And when we are knee-deep in our sin, we never really stop to think, what does my sin say I believe to be true about God? When I'm grumbling, what I am saying in actuality is, God, you don't know best, I do. God, your timing isn't right. God, you're not good because you let this happen. If you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to hear me this morning. You have been saved. You have been set apart. You are a servant of Christ. And these old sinful habits of grumbling do not rule you anymore. You are a child of God. And scripture says, live like it. The next time that we are tempted to grumble and complain, I want you to pull out the big guns. I want you to take this bazooka with you to the temptation. It's really, you're going to think it's profound. Your spiritual life is going to be radically changed. It's these simple words, I am not God. I am not God. When you are tempted to complain and grumble, you need to remember this truth. I am not the God of the universe. I don't get to control these things. 
The second grenade you can throw on your sinful attack of your flesh. I am seen and evaluated by a holy God. Friends, if you have eternity in sight and you are in the midst of grumbling and complaining, you need to remember you're not God, but you will be evaluated on that day, how you respond in this moment. It's not secret. It's not hidden. It is seen by a holy God. And by his grace, you need to launch truth at this attack in your life so that you can say, that's not who I am. I'm commanded to do all things without grumbling, and I need to believe what God says to be true. And I need to refuse to let my feelings take the wheel, and I need to be guided by what is true. I need to ask God to forgive me, to help me live for him, and not be so easily persuaded to live for myself. That is an eternal perspective that forsakes all grumbling for the glory of God. When our minds and our hearts are set on proudly laboring for Christ, there is no room for grumbling. But Paul actually provides a third and final godly motivation for forsaking grumbling. Look with me at verse 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, he says, and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The final godly motivation for forsaking grumbling is so that we can gladly rejoice with believers. It's so that we can gladly rejoice with fellow saints. Within this little letter, Paul makes several absolute prohibitions for the church. He said in 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In our text, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In chapter 4 verse 6, he'll say, do not be anxious about anything. But it's also in this short epistle we find an all-encompassing action we are to do. Philippians 4.4, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Paul is returning to this familiar tune that rings throughout the entire book. He is calling believers to not just serve Christ, but to joyfully serve Christ. Paul is rejoicing in sacrificial service for Christ and his church. And he tells them they ought to gladly rejoice in humble service for Christ. The logic presented is that sacrificial service actually fuels rejoicing. When we are fulfilling God's purposes for us, we will be filled with joy. But not only us, other believers will be as well. There is this repeated emphasis on the shared joy of these co-laborers for Christ. Even in Paul's rejoicing, it's, it's not just about this sort of self-serving, I want joy for me, but it is joy that is with Christ's church. This is humble joy that desires shared gladness with God's people. But grumbling is very different. Grumbling also wants to share. 
but it only shares grief. On top of that, it promises joy, but it's joy that it cannot deliver. Our sinful rebellion against God often starts with wanting a good thing, but we just want it the wrong way, in the wrong time, and for the wrong reasons. And that's true of grumbling. Grumbling pursues joy that it never finds, while humility shares joy that never ends. The more we study God's word, the more we see who God is. And the more we find that his ways, his timing, and his reasons are best. Because they are for his glory and the good of all those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Gladly rejoicing with fellow believers is a godly motivation for forsaking grumbling. But what does this look like practically? How is this truth meant to change our thinking and our living? Too often, churches are ineffective in their mission for Christ because of the fracturing effects of grumbling. You've likely heard the crazy stories of church splits over anything from music styles to the color of the carpet. But the topic was not the issue there. It was the sinful grumbling hearts. And in each version, we find that Scripture holds to be true, because in those stories, there's no joy, and there's no shining. But there was grumbling, and there was disputing. The way that happens is when we, as individuals, refuse to be suspicious of grumbling in our own hearts. When we don't take the commands of Scripture seriously, when we don't confess our sin and turn away from it. If we are going to stand firm and strive as the body of Christ, we must be equipped to fight against grumbling. We must remember that the joy of the Lord is our strength. You want to defeat grumbling about circumstances? Go ahead and punch it in the face with gratitude. But make sure that this gratitude is rooted in God's salvation of sinners. If you need to cultivate joy, you preach the gospel to your own soul. You remember the holy wrath of God that's earned by your sinfulness and the Son of God who died on the cross in your place and adopted you as a child into his family forever. That is where we find strength. That is where we find the joy of the Lord to fight against grumbling. What about grumbling with other believers? I don't want you to punch them in the face, just to be clear. I did not advise that. It's on record somewhere. But I think that's our response because we often forget that sin is not outside us. It is the sin that is in us. So we have to remember that sinful grumbling is not a problem out there. It's a problem in here. You can't control other people. That's you trying to be God. But you can humbly confess your sin. And once you have dealt with the log in your own eye, you are able to find the strength and joy of the Lord, and you're able to then share it with others. 
You were able to finally see how sacrificially loving your fellow believer towards Christ's likeness is joyful. It brings this gladness and rejoicing that Paul talks about. It's not for self-serving reasons, but it's because you are seeking to joyfully serve your Savior. When we forsake grumbling, we are freed to rejoice with each other in all that Christ is doing to glorify his name in and through his church. God has graciously provided God-glorifying motivations for his children to forsake grumbling. We are made to shine forth the gospel in light of the day of Christ while serving and rejoicing today with our fellow believers in Christ. May we here at Redemption Hill purpose in all we do to be grumble-free for God's glory. Let's pray together. Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would equip us by your grace and your spirit to bear much fruit in keeping with the salvation that you have accomplished in your church. Lord, we recognize that there's temptation towards apathy in our hearts that we often are just concerned with ourselves. And Lord, that just leads to more grumbling, more disputing. But Lord, you hold out for us joy, joy in the purpose that you have saved us and called us to. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us an eagerness and an expectation for the day where we will stand before you. That we would yearn and strive that we would lovingly sacrifice and serve one another in the body of Christ so that we might be a beautiful, blameless, precious bride in your sight and a beacon of light that authentically shares and displays the powerful news that Jesus Christ saves sinners. I pray, Lord, that you would use our church in any way you see fit, that you would desire to cultivate amongst our body an eagerness and a desire to, to labor and serve together, that when things are hard and relationships are difficult, Lord, that we would remember it's not about us, that we're not you, and that we would humbly confess our sin and lean in as we experience the fruit of joy that comes to us, that abounds in your church and that glorifies your great name. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your grace in providing a church body that we are not saved in isolation. You are an amazing and sufficient Savior for all these things. And we pray that you would equip your church to bring about your glory in your world. We love you, Lord, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.